his head shifted toward me, and he had the single most disgusting smile I've ever seen to this very day. I can't hide any more than I'm hiding, and if he turns his head an inch more, he'll see us. And the one question to scare you out of your pants as a parent, would you sacrifice yourself for our girls? Headphones recommended. Listener discretion advised. Welcome back in, everyone. I'm your host, Chad. You're just moments away from true tales of terror that will leave you breathless. So brace yourself. This is Disturbed. February has arrived. A new month brings some new horror. And I've got a great show lined up for you. Now one quick thing before we begin. I'd like to know a little bit more about our listeners. So I've set up a brief survey. If you have a minute, help us out and complete our survey. Just head over to disturbedpodcast.com survey and click the banner. Complete the survey, take a screenshot, and send it to us at disturbedpod20 at gmail.com, and you'll be entered to win some free Disturbed stickers. We'll be picking two winners in the coming days. Again, that's disturbedpodcast.com slash survey. And with that, let's get rolling. Our first experience is a bone-chilling one that comes from Reddit user Trashtastic Takeout. It's hard to find an explanation for what happened on Grandma's farm. Performing this experience is Matt Bradford. I was about 11 when this happened. My older cousin Daniel, about 13, and I were playing hide and seek outside my grandmother's yard. She owned a large farm in Tennessee, just over a thousand acres, and I grew up there my entire life and so did Daniel, so it was nothing for us to wander off and play in areas that probably weren't very safe for the average kid, but we knew the property like the back of our hand. Now it just so happened that the day before this happened, a lot of trees were cut down to make room for a new mobile home by the roadside that she intended to rent out for extra income. Daniel and I naturally gravitated towards this new unfamiliar landscape to play because it was something new to explore. All of the trees had been stripped of their branches and placed in logging trucks and hauled off. The branches, however, were all piled in a tangled mess about 50 feet wide and 12 to 15 feet tall. They were packed so densely that you couldn't see through them from one side to the other. It was during about the half hour mark when it was my turn to find Daniel that I began to suspect that he was hiding in the woods deeper than our stated rules allowed. I remember calling his name for several minutes and hearing nothing but a quiet giggle coming from the woods. I was in the newly cut clearing looking into the woods and getting more upset by the minute. Finally, I announced as loudly as I could that if he wasn't going to play fairly, 
then I was going to go in and get a glass of tea and watch television with Grandma. I started back up the hill towards the house. It was at the moment I was walking past the brush pile, basically centered beside it, that I heard an unfamiliar voice. You gave up too quickly. I stopped. I called out. Daniel? It didn't sound like Daniel, but the voice responded. Yes, I am Daniel. I am inside of the limbs. I looked at the brush pile and didn't see anyone. Again, I heard the odd voice call out. If you do not see me, then you have not found me, and I will have won the game. I stepped closer and yelled out to the voice. Why are you talking so funny? The voice replied. I am inside all of the limbs. Look inside and you will see me, Daniel. Something felt really strange about the way this guy was talking. An 11-year-old me just rationalized it, thinking... Maybe his voice sounds different behind the shrubbery and and he sounds like he's talking funny because his voice sounds different. I stepped up to the edge of the brush pile and pulled the branches apart to look inside and there was Daniel. His face was turned toward the top of the hill but his body was facing me. I yelled out, I caught you. His head shifted toward me and he had the single most disgusting smile I've ever seen to this very day. Imagine if someone had the absolute worst of intentions, and they're trying to hide behind a fake, innocent smile to gain your trust, but they couldn't help their glee with the thought that they may have fooled you. That's the best way I can describe the smile. I was so shocked by this wicked facial expression on my cousin's face that I froze in place. The hairs on my neck and arms all raised, and I could suddenly feel my blood running through my body like the temperature had dropped inside my veins. I stammered through my words. How did, how did you get in there? He responded. I fell into the inside of the limbs, cousin. I will need you to give me help or I will continue to be trapped. I didn't notice this time how oddly he phrased his sentences, and it only occurred to me afterwards that his lips were not moving when he spoke. He never changed his face from the twisted, unnerving smile. I didn't immediately notice any of these things, because I was too distracted by the large stick that was plunged deeply into the side of his neck. I noticed in that moment that he had a slow, steady trickling stream of blood flowing from the half-dollar-sized stick in his neck and down across the right shoulder and down his chest. That was enough to jolt my feet awake, and before my brain realized I was trying to run, I was already halfway up the hill to my grandmother's house. When I burst through the door to my grandmother's living room, Daniel was curled up in a ball on the couch and crying hysterically. My grandmother was sitting beside him trying her best to get him to explain what was wrong. All he would say was that there was a little boy in the woods who tagged him when he was hiding, and he thought it wasn't really me. He wouldn't say anything else. I was crying and shaken up by this point, and told my grandmother what I had seen. She made both of us some lunch and then called my uncle to come pick Daniel up. I stayed at my grandmother's house that night, and I bet she asked me what happened a hundred times. She asked so many questions, it was as if she was committing it to memory. I remember being relieved that she believed me. At the same time, I just wanted her to tell me it was all in my imagination and help me forget about it. The next day, my grandmother set the bush pile on fire, and I watched for hours from the safety of the living room window as it slowly deteriorated into a pile of ash and ember. My cousin never did tell me what really happened to him that day. He refuses to talk about it. I will say this, though. He wouldn't talk to me for a year and a half after that day. We were so close when we were little, but that event 
whatever the hell it was. It drove a wedge between us that changed our relationship forever. A huge thank you to all of our newest Patreon members. Your support directly contributes to a higher quality show. Kim Spittler, Regnar93, Kat, Latrice Smooths, and Michelle Hannon. Thanks so much for supporting the show, and you can too. Become part of the podcast, unlock bonus episodes, ad free listening and even claim your Disturbed hoodie. Just head over to disturbedpodcast.com support to get your exclusive access today. Next up, our title story, and we hear from Reddit user Malice Lamb. A truly horrifying scenario unfolded right outside her home. Performing this experience is Sarah Thomas. Yesterday, Saturday morning, my kid, too, has been running out the back door and having us chase her. It's a naughty habit and can be quite scary when she bolts out the door. So she did that again, and I ran after her, saying, Wait for Mommy! She has just gone down the deck stairs. I'm right there behind her when, Bam! 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 Gunshots. And a man running right in front of us in the alley behind my house with a small silver handgun pointed down the alley behind him. He's in a black pleather jacket and green hoodie, scarcely older than a teenager, but has a determined, confident, unflappable air to him that sends chills down my spine. I can't even describe it. He is so close, there isn't time to do anything more than grab my child and duck behind the chicken coop. City hens are allowed here. I guess I figured he'd keep running down the alley and we could crouch there till he disappeared. Only, he doesn't. He hangs a hard left and jumps my neighbor's fence, the neighbor whose yard borders my chicken enclosure. This guy walks within feet of us, starts to exit by the neighbor's gate. Then, and this moment will stay with me for eternity, he hears my toddler scream crying. The only sound around at that moment. He stops with his hand on the gun and turns to look for the source of the crying. I can't hide any more than I'm hiding, and if he turns his head an inch more, he'll see us. Somehow I squeeze and lean just enough out of sight that he just doesn't see us. There was something in his very calm energy petrified me. A shooter who has just had a gun battle in the middle of the day in a little family neighborhood seems to give no fucks, naturally, if others are hurt. But I had this horrible cold dread all over me in that moment, that if he turned all the way and saw us, saw me, saw my expression, he would have to shoot me. Because my face said, I saw what you did. It was the most terrifying moment of my entire life. I felt perched between utter peril and life. 
the breathing, screaming life in my arms. Would he turn that little gut on us? Somehow, incredibly, miraculously, amazingly, as though the pull of investigating the crying so close to him was suddenly overwhelmed by his desire to get the fuck out of Dodge, he puts his gun in his pocket and exits through the gate, runs across the street, jumps the across the street neighbor's fence, and disappears. I smacked my kid's head in my haste to get us back inside. Sorry, baby. And, freaking out, pulled all the curtains and locked the doors. Then, spent ten goddamn minutes getting put on hold by 911. When the cops arrived, I gave them my eyewitness account. And my neighbor, who had been about to take her trash out and saw it all, gave the same account. They caught the guy he was shooting at, but they never caught the shooter I saw. It still sends chills down my spine. What if he comes back? What if those bullets had struck my toddler running toward the shooter? A little girl was recently killed in the exact same way at a park we frequent, sprayed with bullets from a gun battle in the middle of the day in the middle of a playground. It makes me sick to my stomach, and I'm not even sure I want to live in this city or country anymore. Thanks to everyone for the kind words and support. I'm doing okay. My toddler and I have both seen therapists. The offender in question has still not been caught. The other dude he was shooting at was detained. And the detective on the case followed up with me last night. He's hoping the other shooter will give him something to go on, but gave me his number to call if I happen to see the remaining shooter at large. I still get the creeps in my yard, but since my studio and chickens are out there, I just have to deal with the fear and pray the drama won't reoccur. For now, till we can move. Oh, and our back door lock was hella upgraded the morning after this post. We are as secure as we can be. I use the porch floodlights a fuck ton more now, too. Leave us your thoughts about the podcast and get your voice heard on the show. Just hit up our hotline, 701-354-3667. You can call or text. Now our next experience takes us to Wisconsin, where we hear from Reddit user mshawl1005. And we learn that highway rest areas can be a site for unsavory characters. Performing this experience is Tom Aglio. This happened to me 24 years ago in July of 1996. I had finished my term of service for the Army. I was stationed at Fort Hood, Texas, and decided at midnight I would outprocess and travel back to Wisconsin. All day I was so anxious to go that I had trouble sleeping. Finally, at 23.45, I got out of bed and went to sign out with the desk sergeant. Of course, knowing people wanted sign out at midnight, he decided to do his rounds. You can't leave until you get your final sign off with the sergeant and turn in your room key. So I waited and waited and finally at 02.45, he returned. I turned my key in, got the sign off, and at 03.30, I was on my way. At first, I was so full of adrenaline that I felt I could drive for days. 
Unfortunately, that adrenaline didn't last long, and by the time I was getting through Dallas, I was nodding off. I decided just past Denton that I would pull over at the next rest stop and take a quick nap until the sun came up. I could barely keep my eyes open when I came up to a stop. I pulled over and got out of my car to get some air and throw something away and to get a look at my surroundings. There were only about three other cars and two semi-trucks there. It was a picnic stop and not a rest stop, so no restrooms. I threw my trash away and glanced at a poster of a few missing persons, but I really didn't pay any attention to it. I went back to my car, which was a basic Geo Metro, no radio, no power windows, no power locks. I cracked the windows and turned on the boombox I had for some tunes and laid down to get some sleep. I was only asleep maybe 5 or 10 minutes when I felt my car shake just slightly. I cracked an eye open and looked and didn't see anything, so I blew it off and went back to sleep. I then heard what sounded like my door handle being pulled and scratching on the door key. I then sat up quickly, but I didn't see anyone there. I looked at all the windows and didn't see anyone, so again I shrugged it off as me being tired and laid back down and turned up the radio. Being a Texas night in July, it was hot, but I was so tired I just laid back down. A few minutes later, I heard the door handle again and car really shook. I sat up quickly and saw a man standing at the passenger side looking in. Even though it was hot and humid, he was wearing a red sweatshirt with the hood up, and I couldn't see his face. Being young and dumb and just out of the military, I yelled at him, what the fuck do you want? He just stared at me, so like an idiot, I got out of the car. Mind you, I'm only 5'6", but I was pissed. He just walked off towards the picnic tables like nothing happened. All the while, I'm yelling at him that if he came back, I would take him out. I decided I would just drive on from there. I got back in and went on my way. Even though I was so upset only about 10 miles down the road, I was super tired again. Luckily, about another 10 miles down I-35, there was another picnic stop. Not sure why North Texas doesn't have rest areas, but they don't. I pulled into the second picnic stop and backed into a spot just in case I needed to leave quickly. Not sure why, but there was only one other car there and no semi-trucks. I again locked the doors, cracked the windows, and turned on my boombox. I fell asleep right away, and about 30 minutes later, I heard a loud thud on my driver's side window. I jumped up and looked around, and no one was there. I got out of the car, which was very stupid, but I had my macho military attitude going but no one was around. I assumed it was my nerves from the other stop. I got back into my car, locked the windows again, and closed my eyes. This time I was too amped up to fall asleep, so I laid there with my eyes closed. I felt that someone was looking at me, and I opened my eyes and saw the guy standing there again with the red sweatshirt hood up. I couldn't see his eyes, but I could see he was smiling at me. I popped up quick and tried to quickly open the door and bump him. Being a cheap geo, since the doors were locked, it didn't open. He walked backwards, still staring at me. By the time I got out, he was about 30 feet away, facing me. It was fairly dark, but as I looked up, he looked really skinny, but was about 6'2", maybe 6'3". But I still felt like I could take him with my military expertise. He was wearing the red hooded sweatshirt, blue jeans, and green tennis shoes. For some reason, I thought the shoes looked odd. I could see something shine every now and then as he stood there staring at me. I believe it was a machete. I quickly reached into my back seat and grabbed my baseball bat and started yelling at him to come get me. Not sure why I said that. He started walking towards me, and I took a few steps towards him, not really thinking. As I got about five feet from my car and he was now about 15 feet from me, a yellow van pulled up real quick and parked just off to the side of my car. I finally realized what was really happening, and I saw two guys also wearing hooded sweatshirts in the van. Before they could get out, I ran back to my car. I had left the keys in the ignition. 
Since I had backed in, I was able to cut it hard right and peeled my car out of there. I was so lucky being a manual car, I didn't stall the car because the other two guys were out of the van and the first guy was just about at my car. I jumped back on the interstate and didn't stop until I was about 20 miles into Oklahoma. I stopped for gas and to use the restroom. In the restroom, I noticed the same flyer I barely glanced at at the first picnic stop. It was basically a flyer with several missing persons on it and warning people not to stop for long periods of time at the rest areas. It described a possible suspect as being possibly six foot, wearing blue jeans, green shoes, and a red hooded sweatshirt. I completely went white. Needless to say, since it was daylight, I drove the rest of the way to Wisconsin wide awake. Not sure why, but I never reported it to the number on the flyer or told anyone about it. But now I live in North Texas and pass those two picnic stops every day on my way to work, and I think about it quite often. I wonder if they got anyone else or if they caught them. I tried looking it up, but I don't find any stories about it on the internet. So creepy dudes in the sweatshirts in Texas in July? Let's not ever meet again. This episode of Disturbed is made possible by Kind Bar. Kind is deeply committed to crafting food with real, recognizable ingredients. A disruptive notion that sparked the creation of a new, healthy snacking category. Kind is unapologetic in their efforts to challenge the status quo, to shift the food industry and empower their community and our listeners to make better, informed choices about health. Kindness can be a transformative force for good, and that's why we're teaming up with Kind and Podgo to bring our listeners 10% or 15% off for military, teachers, students, first responders, doctors, and nurses. Just go to podgo.co slash kind to claim your discount today. Again, that's podgo.co slash kind. From DNA testing to the Dixie Mafia, Crime Capsule brings you new stories of true crime in American history. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Join us for exclusive interviews with authors from Arcadia Publishing, writing the hottest books on the most chilling stories of our country's past. You can find us wherever you get your favorite podcasts or on evergreenpodcasts.com. Crime Capsule. History so interesting, it's criminal. Hello everyone, my name is Matt Neglia, and I am the host of the Next Best Picture podcast, part of the Film Entertainment Awards website, nextbestpicture.com. On our show, we explore all year long what is possibly going to win Best Picture at the Oscars. We do this by conducting interviews with people within the film industry, holding weekly reviews of the latest theatrical releases, and on our main show, where we dive into various different topics, answer your fan questions, and also do our best to explore Oscar history's past in hopes that it will tell us something new for this upcoming award season race. We hope that you will join us on all of the various podcasting networks. We look forward to seeing you over at nextbestpicture.com. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. 
we try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. Now back to the show. Dating sites can be a real 50-50 proposition. You just might meet the person of your dreams. And on the other hand, you might have an experience similar to Reddit user Gonzo Express. Performing this experience is Addison Peacock. This was an experience I had alongside my BFF in high school. This was about 2006, maybe 2007, in rural upstate New York. We met in third grade and are still friends to this day. We are both 27 now. Let me give you some background information now. My friend B and I became instant friends when we met in third grade, and we were inseparable. We frequented each other's homes so much, so her mom set up her guest room as my room. I had toys, clothes, pictures. I mean, everything I needed was there. I was family. Pictures of B and I hung on the walls of the home owned by her very proud mother, Shelly. Shelly always wanted two daughters and loved me so much that she considered me her second daughter. Now onto the meat of the story. Again, this incident took place when B and I were sophomores in high school. Her mother was divorced and dated a few different men, meeting some off sites like eHarmony. She had been speaking to a man for a few weeks, gushing about how manly and charming he was. She was really excited and always showed us their profiles before she decided to go on an actual date with one of these men. She always would say, I need my daughter's stamps of approval. One night she called us to her room and showed us this man she had been talking all about. His profile was simple, as one would imagine for a middle-aged man in 2007 on eHarmony. The headline read, Looking for a strong mother. I made a joke about his odd placement for caps and just how strange a way to start out, but we moved forward. It told of his metalwork background, his love of cold steel, and his work in a foundry that kept his icy heart just warm enough. I was honest and told her it sounded off, but he was handsome. Sporting black, well-groomed hair, a beard, strong jaw, ice blue eyes, and relatively fit body for a 40-something-year-old male. I did stress on the weird vibe, then B joked how Shelley always picked out the antisocial ones, and we laughed, knowing this wasn't wrong. Shelley's brought some weird stories home, but what do you expect meeting men online? We told her to go for it, so they planned on dinner. It was a haul for him, about a two-hour drive. 
He was driving to our location, where they would then take one car into town. B and I helped Shelly pick out her outfit, helped her with her hair and makeup, and then went back upstairs so she could have some time to herself before the long night. We headed up the stairs where B and I were painting a wall in her room, just listening to music and cutting up. He just let himself in the house like no big deal and just came on upstairs without saying a word. No knocking, no doorbell, the dogs didn't bark, nothing. So we get spooked, jump, scream, and shit our pants a little when we hear a man start talking behind us. We don't know how long he'd been in the house. We don't know how long he stood behind us without speaking. But when he did speak, we shook. Well, 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 I didn't know I was getting a two-for-one deal, he said quietly in a gravelly, low voice. He chuckled as we stood there in shock of the stranger in her room. He sauntered over to us like a man on a Sunday walk. The smell of cigarettes filled the room as if Rod Serling himself was standing in the corner, explaining our situation to the audience for our own personal episode of The Twilight Zone. Right then I noticed how much this guy looked like the guy in the picture Shelley showed us, except he had salt and pepper, not jet black hair, and his eyes were not ice blue, but black. Not brown, black. Looked like this guy was 100% pupil. Are you... I was interrupted by Shelly shouting, Who got hurt? She must have thought we were horsing around and one of us got hurt. This was normal for us because we goofed around a lot. She was jolted at the sight of this man blocking her from us. He turned around just as soon as she reached the top of the stairs and held his arms out and said in a way less low tone than he used earlier, Shelly, you look beautiful. I knocked and no one answered. I hope it's okay I let myself in. These are your girls. They're beautiful, like their mommy. I'll never forget how he said mommy. It felt dirty. B and I both side-eyed each other and stepped down off our stepladders. We were both very in tune with each other. If I felt weird, I knew she did. And we both felt the odd air of the room. Shelly glanced away from him and at us who were behind him, looking at her with wide eyes, both kind of shaking our heads side to side in disbelief. Shelly looked back to him. This exchange only took a few seconds, but seemed like an eternity. She forced a smile at him and said, Oh, I'm sorry. Next time, just ring the bell. I'll come open the door. He nodded and walked towards her with open arms and hugged her like they had been the oldest of friends. She looked at us as they hugged and just kind of rolled her eyes to show us what she thought of his excuse. She proceeded to tell him that it was not appropriate as she led him down the stairs We heard him apologize over and over. He and I instantly ran to our phones. We agreed to text her mom what he had just said to us so we could tell her without him knowing. We hit send, and about 10 minutes later, we heard footsteps up the stairs. It was Shelly, and she shut the door behind her and asked us if we were okay. She hugged us and told us she was sorry he made us feel uncomfortable. She explained to us that he said we reminded him of his girls and didn't mean to scare us. We nodded, and then she said they were leaving out for their date. We hugged her, said be safe, and we would see her soon. As she headed down the stairs, B and I looked at each other. We both knew that something was not right, and we were both speechless from the good scare we received from this dark man just about 15 minutes prior. We heard them walking and talking, heading towards the front door a few minutes later. Shelly shouted up the stairs that she loved us. We yelled back that we loved her. 
and then the door shut. We instantly started talking over each other, saying the same things. B spoke over me. He laid that charm on so thick as soon as he saw mom, B exclaimed further. And did you see his eyes? What the fuck was that? He looked so much like the guy from the pictures, but not exactly? We both concurred on our feelings about the stranger. His scent, his demeanor, his voice. He was like something out of a classic Stranger Danger advert. Again, we agreed to text Shelly how we felt. She thanked us and told us it seemed to be going well and she would let us know that she was safe every hour. B and I just were freaked out and even more so that Shelly was not. It was like a weird spell he cast on her. It was odd, but we wanted to think the best for Shelly as she was excited about this guy. She texted us every hour until she got home. Her last text said, I'm okay, but officially freaked out and coming home now. Be home soon. We got freaked and paced around until we saw headlights pull into the driveway. It had been about five hours since she left and about an hour since that last text. We were inside with the lights off, watching through the side window, trying not to be seen, when the motion sensor light flooded the yard and light fell onto the driveway. A truck flew into the driveway. The passenger side door flung open before the truck was at a full stop and Shelly's feet were on the pavement just as fast. She waved at the driver and kind of jogged the door wide-eyed. She reached the front door, turned and waved the truck off. She had her house key ready in the hand she wasn't waving with. She unlocked the door and slid inside the safety of the house. Keep the lights off. Let's go upstairs, Shelly said as she locked the two deadbolts and the chain, not once looking at us. We headed up the stairs behind her. We walked into B's room and looked out the window down to the truck, still in park out front with the lights on and engine running. As we all stared at the truck, Shelly told us of the ordeal she went through. Long story short, he had made reservations at the wrong restaurant, so he suggested they go buy some food and have a picnic-style dinner at a local park. Shelly didn't do well outdoors. She was an office woman, so she declined. However, he had just drove so long to get here and then hit her with, you kind of owe me. And Shelly said that made her feel bad knowing he drove two hours. So when he mentioned that he had a vacation home he could cook for her at close by, she agreed. She said they got to the house and it was nice enough. Log cabin near Bethel, New York, only about 35 minutes from our town. Shelly said he kept talking about how easy it was to get her alone. He also kept saying he liked strong mommies because they have such fight, but she caved. This made her skin crawl. This wasn't the man she thought it was. This also wasn't the man in the picture, and Shelly started to slowly realize this. Shelly then said she asked for a ride home due to her feeling ill. He wasn't the happiest, but he complied and stopped cooking and started looking for the keys she knew he had in his pocket. He then started asking her about our girls, referring to myself and B. This freaked Shelly out so bad she said she was going to get someone to get her, and that he didn't like. He found his keys instantly. Once they were out of the house and in the truck, the truck would not start, so they had to move to his work truck. Shelly was visibly shaken and wouldn't take her eyes off the truck in the driveway as she spilled the story out post-haste. She said there was a garage that he said they had to walk around the house to to hop in the work truck. She said she felt she had no choice but to play it cool and just agree to go. She hopped out and walked around the house, 
and there indeed was another garage with a truck in it. The same truck that we were all currently staring at, just sitting in the driveway. It smelled like bleach and metal, Shelley whispered. She told us on the way home he just kept asking about us. What did we do that she didn't like? What got us spankings? What were the naughty things we got in trouble for? What she would do without us? And the one question to scare you out of your pants as a parent. Would you sacrifice yourself for our girls? Shelley said she stared at him in awe and disbelief. And then he just laughed. She got more and more concerned as she noticed her surroundings in the back of the truck she was riding home in. There were what she thought were chains in a bucket sitting on a desk that was drilled into the floor, a duffel bag, and very large metal objects she wasn't too sure of. This is when he started to pull out pictures on his little flip phone that he had of us. He must have found Shelley's Facebook and took pictures of our pictures and had them on his phone waving it around, telling Shelly what a good, strong mommy she had been to us. And she should be proud of what she had accomplished. By this time, they were pulling into the driveway, and Shelly was done with his shit. She was just about finished when we saw the truck lights turn off. Shelly immediately picked up the phone and dialed the sheriff and told him quickly there was an unwelcome person outside our home. Being in such a small town, the sheriff not only went to school and graduated with Shelley, but only lived three doors down. Just as we see this guy getting out of his truck with the duffel bag, we saw the sheriff whip up behind him. This man panicked and literally threw his duffel into his truck and tried to back into the sheriff to get out. When he realized he was blocked from the rear, he went through the yard. We could not believe our eyes. The truck peeled out, taking some of the lawn with it. The sheriff came to the door to check on us and told us he had units down the road waiting for him. We all shared a good collective cry and rejoiced in our safety. It did, however, create some paranoia issues in the next couple weeks due to the fact we didn't know how long he was in the house when he just let himself in. Did he put cameras anywhere? Did he mess with the food in the house to hurt someone? I mean, it was bad, but we worked through it. We never heard anything about him getting caught, and we did occasionally receive eerie messages on Facebook, two of which we knew were him, but we put that out of our minds. Haven't heard anything from or about him since about three months after the incident when the last message was received. It's been about 11 years since the incident, but we still talk about it when we can. So, old dude from eHarmony, let's not meet ever, ever again. Support the show to become part of the podcast and get access to bonus episodes, ad-free listening, and much more. Visit disturbedpodcast.com support to get your access today. Get your voice heard on the podcast through our hotline, 701-354-3667. Disturbed is a Disturbed Media original podcast. Musical score by White Bat Audio, co.ag and Kevin Hartnell. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Thursday with a brand new episode. And stay safe out there, y'all.